Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins, and I am the founder and managing director at the Anthony Michael Group, an organization helping medical device, digital health, and diagnostics companies to build best-in-class teams in areas like regulatory affairs, quality engineering, market access, et cetera. Each and every episode, we have the opportunity to feature best-in-class leaders straight from the industry on all things talent-related. And excited that Mr. Alan Chilson is here with us. Alan is the talent acquisition leader over vendor management uh, for a company called Danaher. Uh, Alan has spent over 18 years in the staffing recruitment, talent acquisition areas, both on the agency side as well as within corporate settings. He's had great success building high-performing recruitment teams for both uh, for multiple companies, including the likes of AstraZeneca and a variety of others. And he now currently serves as the leader of programs that deliver RPO or recruitment process outsourcing, uh, contingent and temporary workforce and search firm direct hire services to Danaher's family of more than 20 operating companies. If you aren't familiar with Danaher, it's a Fortune 500 science and uh, technology innovator helping solve complex challenges and improving the quality of life around the world across its diverse portfolio of medtech organizations. Alan also serves as a board member at TALK, which stands for Talent Acquisition Leadership Keynotes, the world's largest Society of Talent Acquisition Professionals. So obviously very excited that you're here with us. I'm honored that you decided to join us on the podcast, Alan. I think nothing but, I should say, I have nothing but the highest regards of you, what you do for talent acquisition as a whole, all the engagement that you do online and how you support other people. And just really glad that you're here today. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me here, Mitch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I feel like um, it's going to be such an awesome conversation because you have so much diverse experience when it comes to not only building recruitment teams, but really kind of making strategic decisions as it relates to how an organization is going to build vendor relationships. And I think so many are, are going to get value from learning from you today about, you know, maybe some of the trials and tribulations you've gone through over the course of your career as far as building these relationships, where it's worked, where it hasn't, what you've learned from it. And I, if it's good with you, I, just, I really want to dig in and maybe start with, if you could kind of clarify what your re scope of responsibility is right now when it comes to vendor management. Yep, for sure, Mitch. So, um, you know, so with Danaher, when I joined uh, just over a year ago, was a newly created role. And, you know, so I sit in corporate talent acquisition and my role is to look to maximize and optimize our use of our RPO vendor, our MSP vendor, you know, help our teams do a better job of working with search firms, right? And we went through uh, what I call a hockey stick growth path at several of our operating companies in 2020 and 2021, just had more work than our recruiters could handle, couldn't add on new contract recruiters quick enough. So, you know, Danaher, many of our operating companies went out and signed on search firms to help. And, you know, historically, Danaher did not use a lot of search firms, maybe for some specific niche needs, but not a lot. And we now have, you know, probably too many search firms under contract. But, uh, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now and, and have recently launched is uh, what we call standard work or, you know, standard operating procedures for how our recruiters should, 
you know, decide if they need to use an agency, decide if they need to add a new one or can use one that's already on our approved vendor list, and then how they should go about engaging that vendor, right? So basically a set of best practices. And that's both to make sure our managers are getting the best service out of the deal, um, but also to make sure our agencies are only being asked to work on jobs where we really need them and are being given the information they need in order to be successful, you know, in supporting the search. So much to unpack just right there with what she said. You know, what's your perspective on criteria as far as, because look, it's, I think, pretty commonplace to say that there's a gazillion agencies out there all touting how they can help and all vying for organizations' business. What's your perspective as far as criteria um, that you utilize yourself or that you would recommend companies use to decide, hey, should we be even signing this agency up in the first place? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, Mitch. And I I think one of the first things for anyone to know, and whether it's the individual recruiter in-house or if it's a recruiting leader, if it's an HR partner, because a lot of companies may not have dedicated recruiters and it's an HR partner supporting the work, you know, is know what your company's unmet needs are, right? So what do you need help with? And then focus any conversation with vendors um, on those that specialize in that area. You know, and then regarding those conversations, I think people need to get comfortable saying no thanks, right? So I get outreach from a lot of different agencies, both for, you know, direct hire support and in the uh, contingent space, but it's not a good investment of time for me or for the search firm. If I take a meeting with a search firm, um, you know, and I'm actually thinking back my time at BASF, I'd get a lot of inquiries from firms that did IT or, or digital staffing. And all of that work for BSF was done out of corporate in Germany, where it was outsourced on SOWs here in the US. So that work was never hitting, you know, was never hitting our temp staffing program or MST program. And our in-house recruiters were not supporting those kind of recs either. So that would not be an agency that I should invest my time with and really to be respectful of them, even though the business development person really wanted to get the call and really wanted to talk to me, the outcome wasn't going to be great, right? So we should both save our time and and not not dance if it's not a good fit, right? So Um, I'd say everybody should focus their time and energy speaking with search firms that fit that targeted area that they need help, right? Mm -hmm. You know, probably some of the other things I think of too is, um, you know, making friends, you know, and I say that kind of with air quotes, although you can get to be friendly with them too, but, um, you know, with your procurement and your legal teams, right? And make sure you know the terms and condition or T's and C's in your company search firm agreement that are deal breakers for them, right? So the things that if if a contract comes back with a red line there, they're going to say, no, can't do business with this firm. So if I can build my knowledge on that and know where legal and procurement have flexibility and don't, I can coach the agency ahead of time, right? So that they either, you know, their managing partner or their lawyer, whoever it is who's looking at our agreement, they can know the things that are deal breakers for us. So that way they try not to redline those. And then, you know, probably one of the last things I'd say is, uh, and I don't know if this happens enough, right? And in a lot of companies, um, you know, once an agency is on contract, on a vendor list, you know, but have a screening call with them. And, you know, make sure you assess, um, you know, and, and if you're looking at them as a new firm, you know, you're going to want to assess a few things too, is both their willingness to share information on the recent and relevant searches, which if they're an existing vendor, you may know about. But also, if you are talking to somebody new, ask them ahead of time, hey, here's our terms and conditions. Our placement fee is this, our payment terms are that, you know, here's your ownership, uh, how you establish it and how long you'll own candidates. But, you know, make sure ahead of time before you even send them the MSA, have that conversation, screen, talk, answer questions. You know, and, and also just make sure they can work with your process, right? So um, a lot of companies use their applicant tracking system. If they have a vendor portal set up there, all submissions have to go in there. Um, that's how they time date stamp ownership if the same candidate is submitted by two agencies. It's really good if, if the recruiter or talent leader can talk about those things to the agency ahead of time, right? So don't leave it all to the contract. You know, let's have a conversation first before I even ask you to review my contract. Yeah, yeah, really great stuff there. I love what you said about 
I mean, all of it um, for different reasons. But one of the things is, hey, where is our, where are our unmet needs? Where are we not, where are we falling down where we felt like we had a partner, but they're just not delivering? And where could we really, you know, beat that piece up? What I see as a mistake happening is organizations are so bombarded with people wanting to do business with them from a search perspective that it all falls into one bucket and they say, no, thanks, no, thanks, no, thanks, without necessarily taking into account, hey, we actually do have a problem. So how do we vet who we should talk to right. solve our problem versus just saying, no, thanks, no, thanks. Or they see it as, you know what, let's sign up a bunch of contingency agreements. It's not going to hurt us to have these agreements. And then before you know it, you've got 50 agencies on file and you don't know who to go to because you had them all sign an agreement. But it was easy on the front end maybe to at least feel like you were able to do business, but then you didn't necessarily vet out what's important to the business problem. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, you know, nothing was more painful for me back in the days when I used to actually recruit and work with hiring managers directly when I'd get them a couple of great you know, screened resumes that fit, checked every box for what they talked about. And they'd say, great, let's put this out to a couple of agencies and just test the market, right? So we already had a slate we could work with, we could start interviewing. And just because they wanted to see who else was out there, they asked me to send it out to an agency. And, you know, it's really tough to ask an agency, especially nowadays when there is a lot of competing work to do is, hey, can you, can you go do this search? But hey, I already talked to like six really good candidates, right? You know, right. you're going to call those same candidates. Um, and, and hopefully you'll know others, but it's really tough because a lot of managers have grown up with that thought of testing the market through a contingency firm since it costs them nothing. But to me, it does cost. It costs, you know, your brand reputation. I respect, you know, the agencies who do work for me and I want to make sure they're not wasting their time. Right. And, um, yep. you know, it's one of these things I've always um, tried to preach to managers too. And, and even the procurement colleagues I've talked to when they want to lower placement fees is, you know, hey, unless we're the quickest company at giving feedback and we're flexible in our job requirements and we move to action quickly, which I've never worked for a company that really meets all those criteria. You can't go ask an agency to work at a discount, right? You have to respect the work they do. You have to pay them a market competitive fee. You know, so it's it's really tough because we do sometimes get those pressures when you're in a cost control environment or, you know, and and I love working with all the procurement colleagues I've worked with. If any of them are listening, I'm not thinking of them when I say this, but some procurement people get really hung up on, hey, I need a new cost saving avenue. Let's reduce this fee structure by two and a half percent so they can go back and claim a win to their boss. But it's it's only going to hurt us. If I'm paying the least and I'm not those other three things that I said make you like the best client, we're going to get all the candidates last, right? Which doesn't help us fill our jobs quickly. And if you do fill it, what are you missing? What is the opportunity cost like you just said? And I'm glad yep. you have that perspective because I think a lot of times in recruiting, it's very hard for organizations to differentiate their value proposition and to companies. I think that companies just see, oh, well, you'll send us resumes or you'll send us resumes and it's kind of the same thing. And the recruiting industry, the third-party headhunting recruiting industry doesn't do itself justice because everybody says the same thing. We've got, you know, 30 years of combined experience. We've got proprietary data. Everybody says the same thing. So therefore, how do you, how do you fault organizations from feeling like it's all the same? And yeah. so that's where you start getting into, oh, this is a commodity business when it's really not. It's human capital, which is the most important asset to an organization. And I think a lot of times, both agency side and companies lose sight of that. What are, the, what are we asking these people to do? Are we asking for them to be a resume clearinghouse for them? Or are we asking them to be a true talent partner and recognize the, you know, the, the criticality of what they do to the outcomes that we're trying to deliver as a business? Right. Yep. And, and nobody measures it, but it's that opportunity cost of not filling a job in a timely manner, right? So 30 days of an empty seat again. In a lot of jobs, you can't quantify that. 
right? Whereas I have found, and you know, I mentioned earlier my time with BSF before Danaher, them being mostly, you know, such so much of our workforce being in manufacturing. So when a job went unfilled in manufacturing, you could kind of quantify the cost because somebody else was working overtime to do that job in a 24-7 environment, right? So uh, yep. the managers knew the pain, they knew the budget hit they were taking if they couldn't fill a job. But you're spot on. I mean, if everybody promises the same thing, and if we don't invest the time to really figure out who are those difference makers. I mean, the other thing, Mitch, and when we're thinking of, of the headhunting world, um, you know, the other thing that we're putting into this standard work that we've built is, you know, we want our recruiters to actually manage the work that the search firm is supporting like a project. Right. So in the past, I've seen recruiters say, yeah, an agency is working on this. So I'm just waiting for resumes. But we can't do that because we're still that internal project manager for the manager, right? Who doesn't have time to chase the agency. So we really have to manage both the agency is doing what they should be doing to deliver and that the manager is reviewing resumes, giving feedback, recalibrating all those things. So we've really asked the recruiters to start scheduling an intake, which I know doesn't always happen because the recruiter will give you information, but they don't let you talk to the manager. Right. So. Let's get all three together, in-house recruiter, agency recruiter, and manager. Do an intake. Make sure we're not just looking at a job description, but we're discussing all the nuances, right? The unwritten requirements the manager wants. And then, but also that our recruiter needs to position themselves that they are that project manager so that you as the agency know you come talk to the recruiter, not the manager. And the manager comes to the recruiter, not the agency. Um, so they stay as the hub, as the project manager. They can hold everybody accountable. They should pre-schedule, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly check-ins so that you're getting feedback from the manager on resumes. You're sharing to the manager what you're hearing in the market because there's so much value to the information that a third party will hear of why candidates are saying, no, thanks, I'm not interested in that job. So we're really just trying to make sure they understand is, hey, this job's already escalated that you're going out to agency. So you need to give it more attention versus less. You know, Just because you have a third party or maybe more than one third party party working it doesn't mean you can forget about it. Yep. Love that. And I, before we move on, I, I love what you said about the importance of having some sort of criteria, right? Vetting and asking simply, hey, in the last X amount of time, how many relevant searches have you, have you filled and who have you filled them with? And would they be a reference for you? And following up on right. that reference, right? We check, you know, it's a little bit controversial these days about reference checking to begin with for candidates, right? As far as them supplying you a reference and how much are you really going to find out from that? But with a business reference, an agent, if the, an agency has a client that they're working with and they're doing similar work for them, that's valuable information that you would want to call that organization, say, hey, what have they done well? Where would you like to see the service improved? Would you recommend using them again? Right there is a great, simple vetting criteria. And it's going to yeah. save you so much headache versus being sold a bag of goods. And then the person, you know, they don't deliver. And you went through all this process to get your legal involved, to get these contracts signed. And then everybody's hoping that their person's going to deliver. And now you're still sitting there, you know, with an empty, empty bag in your hand. So absolutely. Yep. I, um, I think it, nobody should, you know, so not every agency is going to tell you the names of their customers or who they placed. Right. But I think from the, the buyer of the service perspective, you shouldn't be embarrassed to ask, right? Because, you know, hey, tell me where you've worked in the industry. And if you can't tell me the names, tell me similar roles you've worked on. Did you fill them? You know, those kind of things. Um, if they want your business, they should be willing to give you enough information to, you know, satisfy your your needs. And yeah, maybe they won't say, yeah, you can call Alan. He was my client and he'll give me a reference, right? I mean, it's great if you can have that kind of a rapport with your clients eventually, but, you know, too often, and let's face it with the, the great reshuffle that's been going on, those in-house recruiters you've worked with may no longer be at some of those clients. So, 
you may not be able to always connect directly, but they should be able to give you examples of other industry companies they've supported, other relevant or similar roles that give you the confidence that they're the right firm to work on that job. And speaking of that, talk about how how to effectively partner with the right firms. I, you know, we could talk if it's, you know, how you select your RPO partners for contingent stuff, how you select, you know, uh, how do you partner with them effectively and how do you prioritize? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a tough one, right? And, you know, having this luxury that I've had for the last few years of managing, you know, RPOs and MSPs, right? So the RPO is one direct recruiting partner that yep. brings recruiters, brings coordinators, brings some other support staff to the table and, and basically can follow our recruiting process and, and deliver recruiting. The MSP side gets a little bit different, right? So they're the program management office, but then they're managing tens of dozens of, you know, hopefully not too many more than dozens of, but um, a lot of different staffing firms. And, you know, what I've seen over the years is a lot of times staffing firms continue to get added, but if you don't have the right MSP partner, they're not pruning over time. The good MSPs do conduct supplier scorecarding. Usually at least once a year, they'll share that with me as, as the client, but they also share it with the staffing firms. And it is bragging rights, right? So there are a lot of staffing firms that'll tell you, hey, Pro Unlimited ranked us number one in the ABC company program, right? So it's only one program, not like across all MSPs, but it still means they are a top performer in that program. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, if I, if I stay on that vein and talk about contingent staffing firms, um, you know, or, or you know, temp, temp providers, um, you know, working through the MSPs, or, you know, if you're at a company where you don't have an MSP and you have to work with them directly, I get lots of business development calls and emails from that space, right? Not so much from the headhunters, but a lot from the staffing firms. And um, every time I talk at a conference, do an industry podcast, um, so I'll get a bunch of calls after this this airs too, and um, or get recognition, right? It kind of puts your name up there. Yep. And um, they are really hard to differentiate, right? Because they they really do use almost all the same canned emails when they reach out, you know. But I think you know, I think there's a, a few things you know that you can look to do to try to make sure you're engaging the right firms, right? And and part of it comes back, and and I'm going to feel like a broken record saying this, but it's it's knowing your company's needs, right? So if if my finance department only comes to us like three times a year for a temp, I don't need a lot of finance staffing firms, you know, in, in my program. So if I get those calls, you know, those can go to the side. That's also a function that maybe could be done by almost any firm, right? Or at least somebody who generally supports functional roles versus specialized roles in the sciences. But you need to know what your needs are. You need to feel really comfortable saying no thanks when somebody reaches out and using that IT example I used previously. You know, and I think everybody would love to have a really small group of go-to suppliers when it comes to this. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that there's always going to be those needs for highly specialized and geographically specific um, search firms in your program, right? So the footprint here at Danaher across our operating company stretches across the country if I'm just thinking US-centric. BASF was the same way, mostly, you know, east of the Mississippi, but still a lot of geographical diversity. So we needed local firms sometimes. You know, we're hiring people who work 24-7 in a manufacturing plant. National suppliers may not be able to find people in the middle of uh, rural Georgia, right? So you, you might need your your local staffing firm. You know, you also need some highly specialized firms for, you know, some of your, your really uh, niche roles. You know, so I think you're likely to have a lot of suppliers under contract and whether that's an MSP or an in-house run program, it may not fill many roles each year. And it's probably not their fault because you didn't have a lot of roles in their geographic specialty or their industry specialty. You know, so I think that's a kind of a tough one, right? Because, you know, everybody would like to have that ideal shortlist. I think the scorecarding that the MSP suppliers do lets you know who your elite providers are, right? And these are the ones I want to give more of my national footprint work to because they do a great job. But I have to bucket those local 
suppliers and those niche suppliers into separate buckets because I can't measure them the same way on that scorecard. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be tearing up their contract every year or two because they want to look like great performers. You know, I think you know, probably the only other thing I'd, I'd say in that space is, you know, is when you do find an unmet need, you know, you don't have a supplier in the program to work on it. Um, there's a few questions I look to go through. Similar to what we were just talking about for the headhunting is, you know, have they supported other companies of a similar size or in the similar same industries? And if I have an MSP program, are they used to working with MSPs, right? Because if they're used to working directly with the company and I ask them to work through a third party and to work through getting their jobs through a VMS instead of a direct conversation with a manager, they may struggle, right? So I want to make sure they're used to working in my environment. You know, I want to make sure they have uh, programs in place to um, engage and retain their contingent workers, right? So it's a really competitive market out there for full-time hiring right now. It's even worse for temp staffing. And this is a, a community that may move down the street to another job for another 25 cents an hour, if I'm thinking light industrial. And for the specialized roles, you know, they may just move around, right? When they have a, you know, they something, the grass sounds greener someplace else and they may move. You know, so do they have check-ins with their workers? Do they have ERGs or something else set up to give them a sense of belonging? You know, there's there's those kind of questions to ask of them, right? So if I go, but you know, once I know they fit the specialty I need, how do you engage your workforce? And then I might ask them some questions about the diversity, both of their main office staff, right? So those full-time workers that are part of their back office. And then also the people they're putting out on temp assignments, how diverse are, are those workers? Because a lot of staffing firms come running and saying, hey, here's my diverse owned um, firm certification, right? They're, you know, um, minority, female owned, that sort of thing. But I want to see if they're actually employing a diverse group in their own house and then also putting a diverse group out to work. Because every place I've worked, we do have a frequency of converting temps to full-time roles. So you want to know that there's a diverse community out there working for you so that hopefully that helps your your full-time diversity at some point. And, and now I'll pause and catch my breath because I feel like I've been speaking for the whole session. No, that was awesome because I before that, I was thinking, hey, if, this, if there's a talent acquisition leader or human resource leader who's listening and they're thinking about engaging contingent workforce staffing partners right now, what are some of the criteria? And you just, you went right into yeah. it. So two things. One, how important to your decision of, of when it comes to forming these partnerships is the diverse workforce uh, element to you right now? So to me, it's it's a big, important thing, right? Um, you know, especially in this temp staffing place, like like I said, I feel like sometimes you need to be local, sometimes you need to be specialized. Um, but, you know, otherwise they're, they're fishing in the same ponds, right? You know, but it's great to see that they have a, their own in-house team is diverse and they're placing diverse people because it just means that they're not leaving stones unturned and they are, you know, hiring a diverse group. Um, Danaher has a big commitment to diversity. We have some, some criteria that we must meet before we move forward on the full-time hiring side. You can't really hold a temp staffing program to that same gate of making sure you have X number of diverse people on the slate before you move forward. But just knowing that their, you know, their overall diversity shows that they're putting a lot of females and a lot of minorities to work in their programs, you know, to me is a big deal and it's a big differentiator. Procurement people like the diverse spend. So they like when the firm shows up and says, hey, I'm diverse certified because they're reporting that as diverse spend. But from my HR side of things, right, you know, so where my heart is, I want to see diverse people coming in. Yeah. And I'm okay if I'm spending with a non-diverse owned firm if they're really good at hiring a well-rounded diverse workforce, right? So to me, the, the players you're putting out there to work are much more important than your own agency's uh, diverse certification. Because that just means you have a diverse owner, you know, versus performance right. that's coming out. How do you value uh, pricing when you're making your decision as far as really taking that into account of, hey, the cheapest, the most expensive? Like, what's, how do you look at that piece? Yeah, so I think that's a, a great question, right? So I think when you work in the, especially with the MSP programs, usually you're holding your staffing suppliers either to a... Um, Either using not to exceed bill rates 
or you're using a markup model where, where they can only mark up X percent on top of the worker's um, pay rate. And I think either one of those should do. I mean, if you try to cut your profit margins you're giving to your suppliers too tight, you might find in a tough market like we're in right now that you're having a hard time hiring people. And what I want is I want the, I, everybody's got to be able to afford to stay in business to work for us, right? So nobody can afford to lose money. You know, so you have to price things the right way. I've seen programs where even when you're using an MSP, if you cut their fee too small, they can't afford to give you the right amount of account management and everything else you need to have an effective program management office. So in my opinion, you have to fund your MSP properly, but then you also have to, and you have to work with the MSP. They're the ones with the knowledge, right? On how to manage these programs. Don't undercut what you're, you know, what you're allowing for your suppliers as well. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, if I can get the same worker for a 35% markup or a 50% markup, yes, I'd like to save my company uh, money and get the 35% markup. But you really have to leave that float so that the suppliers feel like they can go get the right talent and they can afford to pay their recruiters to go find that right talent for you. How do you feel about it in the direct search world? And I'm really curious to get your opinion because I know like, so for those listening, you probably agree that most search firm organizations, most pitch themselves as anywhere from 15% 15% to 33 and a third percent on the top end as far as how they charge in one way, shape or form. And I would tell you that probably 99% of the people say it were 20%, 25%, 30%, et cetera. We don't price ourselves that way. It's completely different and on purpose. One, because I, it's like, to me, it's commodity stuff and you got, I want people to stop for a minute and realize what are we talking about here and what are we giving you as a service in comparison to Um, what you're asking for. And it doesn't necessarily just fit into these buckets. But I'm curious how you look at this. Like, do you believe that you get the same, what you need from people who price themselves lower and you get something similar from people that price themselves higher? What's your perspective on that? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, so one of my observations earlier in my career, you know, the first time I was working with some retained search firms was, you know, and they're the ones that usually come in at 33 and a third, right? And, and they want to get paid in installments and you pay them the first installment and they disappear for a month, right? And um, whereas you work with a contingent search firm and that recruiter knows they got to get your resumes quickly because you're still working the job yourself and you may have some other agencies involved. So you get quicker service there than you do at a retained search, right? Because I've guaranteed them their, their fees and, I, you know, and, it, and they're going to stretch it out. And for some jobs, yes, it's going to take six months to go through a retained search and for them to curate a a list of top candidates and convince them to be interested. But there's a lot of firms trying to get to those retained searches that maybe don't really have that model. And they're trying to do it on jobs that don't need that model. So now if we jump into the contingent search, right? So the bulk of it, you know, it's really funny. And this is where, you know, you get differing opinions, right? And you get a, you get a manager who says, Hey, it's my budget. I'll pay whatever. You get a procurement person that says, ah, we can probably do this at 12 and a half percent, right? In a down economy, you know, and then I look at, you know, the balance of both sides and I'm like, hey, I get the manager's point. I need help yesterday. And we as talent acquisition haven't been able to produce that candidate. So we need to go engage a partner or two. I can't go out and offend the agencies and ask them to work at 12 and a half percent. So I'm never going to entertain that procurement person wanting to reduce the money. And let's face it, I've had agencies pitch that discounted rate to get their foot in the door. I don't want to ask you to undersell your services. You know, yeah. if you're if you are going to give me 20% or 25% feed structure service, charge that, right? And I appreciate when they want to get in because they they all, you know, that's when I've been at companies where there's 500 roles open they know they could work on and they know the opportunity is there. I think it's I mean it's it's important for a company to really look at, you know, and like I said, there's those kind of three or four criteria, right? Are we the quickest to give feedback? Are we the quickest to make a decision? Are we flexible on our requirements? 
And quite honestly, what's our what's our employer value proposition or reputation in the market? Unless you're elite on all four of those, you really can't ask for a discount, right? So you need to pay the right fee. You know, right now I think it's probably between twenty to twenty five percent, depending on the uh, the roles that a, a company is working on for you. If, if you're doing light industrial or you know some entry level ish, you know engineering or other stuff, maybe supporting manufacturing, maybe it could be done at 15%. But I really think, you know, the the average agency is working between 20 and 25% right now. And you need to be willing to pay that if you want to get good recruiters to focus on your jobs. Because I always knew that person offering to come in at like half price to get their foot in the door. None of the recruiters are going to want to touch that search because, you know, they're getting a portion of the fee when they're successful. And now that's going to be discounted and they don't want to, they don't want to take discount work. They want to make full fee work. You said a couple of really important things that are really important is putting some of this onus on yourselves as the organization. What are we offering? What do we have? And are we incentivizing this, this quote unquote partner to help us the way we want to be helped? Do, what are we, what is our employer value proposition? Are we partnering with them in the sense that we are giving the feedback when they need it so that they don't lose the talent we're trying to, are we asking for pie in the side? pie in the sky types of talent that don't necessarily exist? Or are we flexible on what we're trying to hire? And basically, what are we doing to roll out the carpet for a smooth process versus making it obstacle after obstacle after obstacle and then expecting somebody's going to snap their fingers and make magic for us, right? Where that same recruiter can go down the street and help an organization because they are nimble, because they are flexible, because they do want to partner together. And it makes that recruiter's job much easier. You know, my view on the pricing piece is not, it's not one size fits all. It's just not. And I think that if you can identify, you know, it's different too. I got to be careful on what I say here because larger organizations, they just naturally have to work differently than smaller companies. There's just much more involved. But I would say that more often than not, if you can vet an organization that you can hold accountable to be your recruitment partner and they are responsible for producing results or activity on a weekly basis and you know exactly where they are in a transparent fashion and that they know that they have the probability of success of filling that role goes through the roof because you're holding them accountable, everybody wins. And I get that every situation is different. I've seen that work the best, but I just, I love what you said about, hey, it's not just what are they doing for us, it's how are we involved with this as a true, as a partnership. I think that's awesome. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, wonder, I think where, where we as the in-house people have to get over is that we're not doing you a favor when we say, hey, I'd like you to work on this role. We have to respect that you have, you know, you have competing clients. You have, you know, hopefully you got a board. I always think back to the old days of, you know, everything went on a, on a white dry erase board, right? When everybody was working in, a, in an Still office is. somewhere, right? A lot of and, times, um, yeah. You know, so, so you got your priority searches up there, right? And when you fill one, you erase it and something else yeah. comes up there in place of it. But you want to be those top priority searches on the whiteboard, not the ones that somebody's going to work on if they have some spare time, right? And that's where I think you do have to work to be the right partner. And I think it's great. In, and if we do have like TA leaders on the call, if you can build a structure, build something like we're talking about with the standard work we're creating at Danaher, because the other thing I've heard, and I've heard this from some of the agencies I've talked to since I joined Danaher is that, hey, things were really great when so-and-so was the talent advisor I was working with, but he or she left and now I don't hear anything back. Right. And that's why we're trying to get everybody to follow that best practice of being a, a project manager when they work with search firms. But that's the whole thing. I mean, if you don't have a really standard process, it's only as good as your recruiters that are interacting with the agencies. Love that. 
Love that. Just like a search firm. Hey, you don't want your best recruiters to go out the door. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, we used to work with so-and-so. They're gone. You want to have a process in place that can be scalable and repeatable and hopefully predictable. So that doesn't just rely on one person's talent. I, I love that. Right. I want to wrap this up by asking you this. You know, you've had so much experience over the last almost 20 years of doing this and building these partnerships. What's uh, what's a couple of insights you could share of where things didn't go the way you had intended and what you've learned from it? So maybe people who are listening to this can learn from, you know, from your hard knocks, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, so thinking about that and even the conversation we were just having is, um, you know, making sure that talent acquisition or HR, you know, whoever it is that's in in-house working on these recs doesn't look at the agency as a competitor or, you know, something else and and really looks at them as a partner. Now, I, I can say that I've also worked with agencies that raise the antenna of HR or talent acquisition because they try to work around our processes. Even sometimes after signing an agreement, they'll do things the wrong way, but, you know, still and have a coaching session, right? They'll just say, hey, I'm going to blacklist this agency because they don't follow our process. Let's talk to them. Let's find out why. But, you know, don't look at them as an adversary, right? Because we're all trying to work towards the same goal of filling this open. So that would be one thing I, I'd say. And, you know, early in my career, you know, it's always you kind of want to flex your muscles and say, hey, I can fill this job. I don't need an agency, right? And especially if the manager came to you wanting an agency and I was still working on a, a good group of um, prospective candidates, but don't look at them as an adversary. And and that probably, um, you know, is another thing I would look to say is, you know, if your manager is asking you to work with an agency or there's a possibility they've worked with them before, spoken to them before, you know, ask the questions and figure out why the manager is gravitating towards that agency, because that agency may have some credibility established that you're not aware of. And you don't want to walk into a meeting and tell a manager, hey, I think Mitch is a bum. And in the meantime, that manager has filled roles with you for the last 10 years and, and thinks you are a recruiter got, right? So I need to ask the questions I need to know, you know, why, why is the manager asking about using this agency? You know, cause you don't want to, you don't want to lose face yourself by not being aware of, of this agency's um, credentials, right? So, um, so I think that's really important thing to take away as a learning. And probably the other thing I'd say is, is, um, you know, I, I think I've seen it more times than I'd like to say, and is that when you rely on a couple of specialized generalist firms, that you just want to go to as your go-tos, you know, without really investing the time to look at those specialized search firms. So when we talked earlier about unmet needs, right? So let's not put all of our eggs in the one or two baskets with those firms that have, you know, have built a good reputation with our company, but let's make sure we know where their capabilities are. And you can only find that out by talking to them. So again, when that becomes having these partner conversations versus adversary conversations, you know, I've learned back in the day when one agency and another agency in talking to them both, I found out they used to work together, right? And they, you know, and and they kind of split their work a certain way, and that's how their their own agencies became. So these two people still talk to each other a lot, but they had kind of agreed to, you know, separate the work, you know. So I was never going to get the two of them to kind of compete against each other, right? So so also just you know having those conversations and learning more about um, the agencies that you want to partner with, and then um, I don't know. I guess the you know the only other thing I might say is um, you know maybe looking under the hood, right? Um, so you're you're looking to partner with an agency because they seem to fit fit the specialty you need, you know, they fit your geography, whatever, whatever it is that you're out looking for is an unmet need. But in your screening, you know, finding out, you know, do they fill all of their jobs themselves or do they do a lot of splits, right? Because I've also learned in the past, you know, a lot of agencies will get really good at building a rapport and getting under contract, but they don't have that many recruiters back at their office. So then they go do splits on, on back channel 
you know, networks and stuff like that. Um, so now you might have somebody out there representing your brand that you've never talked to. Hopefully they're not using your brand. They're just trying to generate candidate leads and then feeding them to the primary agency. But I think that's a valid question that people could ask as well as, hey, do you do all your your own research and your own candidate outreach or do you do, you do partners, right? Um, and one really quick thing I'll say, which made me think of that. I remember back when I was at Sharing Plows supporting their animal healthcare division. And I talked to one headhunting firm and, and the guy was nice, but he basically, he didn't like our terms and conditions. He said, Alan, I'm, I'm not going to sign that contract. Other recruiters from sharing before you have tried to get me to sign it. And, um, you know, he was from like the Midwest, so I'm not going to try to imitate his accent when he says this, but he basically said, Hey, Alan, I fish in some ponds and I stock other ponds. Right. So, um, he was basically saying sharing was going to be a place that he was going to feed his clients from, as opposed to him signing our contract and being restricted. So I continued looking, found another animal health specialized agency, got her under contract. And like two weeks later, um, speaking to her on the phone and she goes, Oh, you know, so-and-so was so mad when he found out I signed a contract with your company because he jobs a lot of his work over to me. <laughs> so I actually had gotten to the right one without that, right? But that's why I think about that, that looking under the hood, finding out how they get their work done, because here was a guy who refused to sign our contract, but I wound up getting to the right agency anyway, you know? So that's, that's probably my last thought on that. No, great stuff. And I was going to say with that last piece, hey, is the person that you're talking to on the phone who's quote unquote selling you the service, are they, what part are they in the process? Are they actually talking to the candidates for you? Do they have a team that's, if, if they're not farming out the work and doing splits, who's screening the candidates? How, who's presenting the candidates? Who are you working with as the liaison? I think that's important too, because a lot of these, a lot of firms, you know, they've got even, you know, on the road salespeople and then you never hear from them again after you, and then you're passed off. It's like, well, wait, right. I build a relationship with you. If they're involved, that's fine, but we should probably meet them too. So we have a level of comfort of who we're going to be working with. Yep. Yep. And it's one thing if that person that initially sells is going to be positioned as your account manager or, or, you know, solutions, you know, person. But yeah, if, if you're never going to hear from them again, and they're just the one who's bringing in a contract, yeah, then, then you probably didn't do your homework well, and you didn't have the, the right person at the table. I mean, that's, that's a bit of advice I've always given people when I've been asked to give references, like for both the RPO or the MSP programs is, you know, you're going through this RFP process and everybody comes in and puts up a fancy slide deck, gives you some glossy handouts. And obviously I'm talking about pre-COVID when we still met in person, right? But, you know, the hard part with either one of those is you're not meeting the person who's going to be your account manager, right? Because they can't place an account manager until they get your contract. So there might be an account manager at the RFP meeting, but that is somebody from a high performing account who they're kind of grooming to move up into management, who's coming out and doing some of these sales presentations. That's not going to be your account manager, right? So yeah. that's, that's really the hardest part is you, you know, so I always recommend do your reference checks. Like when they're talking to me, this, you're, you're smart to do this because here with somebody who actually has a live account going on versus versus the top gun who came to the sales presentation. Yeah. I can't thank you for uh, enough for being here today, Alan. I have nothing but the utmost respect for you and not only what you've done in the past, but what you're helping Dan and her do. I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, you're somebody who's constantly out there engaging with people's content. You're putting out content. And I really feel like you're somebody who's trying to help the industry at large do business better, healthier, and really have a, a great outlook on the idea that it you know, there's partnerships and relationships to be made versus one way, our way or the highway or adversarial. So thank you for what you do for the industry. Thank you for being here and uh, all the great content you shared today. All right. Great. It was great joining you, Mitch. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content rich episodes, log on to the anthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.